Do you have one big dream? I'm talking about one thing that even if you never did anything else creatively, you would feel fulfilled if you at least completed that one dream that was on your heart. Today's guest had something like that. It was to make a feature length film in his lifetime. Today, you will hear his journey of how he went from idea to distribution deal, and you'll gain tips on how you can make your biggest dream come true too. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, and multi-passionate creative. This show sits at the intersection of creativity, mental health, self-development, and spirituality, and it is meant to give you tools to love, trust, and know yourself enough to claim your right to creativity and pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. Today's guest is Jeffrey Crane Graham, or as I call him, Jeff. He is a writer, producer, director, and podcaster. He recently released his first feature film, Always Lola, which was featured in Deadline and won major awards at places like the Boston Film Festival, Silver State Film Festival, Marina Del Rey Film Festival, and many more. It also starred one of my besties, Roxy Stryer, and she was amazing in the movie. The whole movie really is incredible. Jeff also produces and co-hosts the Screenwriting Life podcast and previously produced and hosted at AfterBuzz TV, that's where I met him, and Better Together with Maria Menunos. I wanted to have Jeff on the show because his creative journey of successfully writing and releasing his own feature-length film is a great example of how you can make your own dreams come true. You don't have to wait for someone to tell you you can do it. You really can say, you know what, I want to make this happen and then go after it. So from today's chat, You'll learn the benefits of owning every part of the creative process, how to overcome imposter syndrome, tips for working with your romantic partner, how to know when it's time to take your creative idea to the finish line, and how to finally go after your biggest dream. Okay, now here he is, Jeffrey Crane Graham. Jeff Graham, I love you so much. I'm so happy to see your smiling face. You've moved across the country and left us in Los Angeles with a hole in our heart in the shape of a Jeff Graham. How are you doing with your new move to New York City? Well, first of all, Lauren, I want to echo everything you just said. Your audience knows this, but for those who are new to the show, Lauren LaGrasso is a saint. It's very, very good to see you. And I'm also like feeling a little bit of like, I'm on a show I really like. I'm a fan of your show and I like creativity podcasts, but yours specifically has a great kind of sharp point of view. So it's an honor to be here. But New York is actually surprisingly like great. I was very nervous about making the move. I've lived in LA for close to a decade. I met Lauren in Encino, California. Yes. The stunning Encino, California. I will never forget that day, Jeff. Like, we'll just paint the picture. I was interning at 26 when I met Jeff. So, like, Mm -hmm. not necessarily, like, feeling like I was super successful in the moment. And you just (laughs) made me feel like I was happy to be doing it. But, like, it definitely was humbling in a lot of ways. Like, I cleaned toilets when I was interning. So, when I met you, it was just like, oh, this is a nice person who's going to make me feel good about myself. Like, it just... I remember like letting out a sigh of relief when I met you. That is so funny because I felt the same way. I was new to a job. It was a pretty admin heavy job. It was interesting. That was at AfterBuzz TV. You were experienced with the network because you had done some hosting for them. I was a little intimidated because I was entering into, um, it wasn't a producer position, but it was kind of like a big coordinator position and I didn't have a ton of experience. And I was entering a company that had a very specific already like niche culture that I was new to. And similarly, Lauren, like you were so warm and easy and like the vibes were good. And that matters a lot, you know? Like I think we both just had like a good vibe check with each other and that's yeah. meaningful, you know? We did. And I, and you brightened my day that day so much and always did every time I would see you. Okay, so you're, you're new to New York. You moved there from LA. Like mm-hmm. tell me... Obviously, you're still integrating in because it's only been, what, a month and a half? A couple months, yeah. But I've been back to L.A. twice already, so I clearly can't leave, yeah. It's been for, like, three-day chunks for, like, worky things. Yeah. And then I was in Seattle. <laughs> it's been a weird two months, but mostly good. What is the difference creatively between New York and L.A. from what you can tell so far? One thing I will say that I love about L.A. that I will miss 
is I think four out of five people in LA work in the entertainment industry is the statistic. So it's kind of fun in LA to go to like a bar or a coffee shop and probably at least one person, even if you don't know them, you definitely like mutually know someone or like can figure out like, oh, I've worked with them. And I always say that like the hard thing about a city in the Midwest where we're from is that like the currency of conversation is only sports. Like if you meet a stranger, the only thing you can talk about is the game. Nightmare for me. Same, because like <laughs> I definitely have not seen the game. I don't even know what sport probably they'd be talking about. Whenever someone asks me, what do you think of the game? I say, that was crazy. Because then if it was good, they're like, I know it was great. And then if it was bad, they're like, I know. I can't believe you missed the kick. That's a great hack for talking to sporty people. <laughs> but what's nice about LA is like, I always have something that I can talk about because most people are like up to date on the entertainment industry. But in New York, I find that most people are up to date on like pop culture in general. Hmm. It's not hard to connect with people in New York. I was worried I wouldn't fit in here. And I actually like really like it. I think the creative inspiration from New York that I'm sensing so far is just the amount of people and the variety of people. I had like never been to Central Park before. And I thought Central Park was like, a park. <laughs> I thought it was like there'd be like a playground in a sandbox. But it's the size of a large city and it's like thousands of acres of lakes and trees and trails filled with people and horses and carriages. And like just walking through Central Park, I'm like, this is the most I was like, I have to film a movie here tomorrow. I was wow. like, this is incredible. Yeah, it's a forest. It truly forest. is. In the a middle forest. of the city. It's a jungle in the jungle. Yeah, very true. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I, I think just even the amount of people you see there, because you can very easily go through an entire day in Los Angeles and not see people, or at least not see mm -hmm. many people. But in New York, people are unavoidable. And so in this way, it's like maybe you could have a whole day where you're alone. You're never really alone. And that is inspiring in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And luckily, I'm pretty extroverted, so I can do it. Some people get creative fulfillment by being alone. Um, and that like alone time and solitude and meditation is very important to them. And if you're that type of person, I think New York could be hard. Yeah. I really get my juice being around people. It's working for me. But I'd be curious to talk to New York creatives who also love the woods and love solitude. Because I don't know if, how compatible it would be. Yeah. I mean, it kind of sounds like they're really in the wrong place. Unless they like have a tent in Central Park that nobody <laughs> comes to. <laughs> What is your vibe, Lauren? Like, when do you feel like you're most creatively enriched? Honestly, when I'm in Detroit. Out of the six singles I put out, and I've written a ton of songs, but out of the six singles I've put out so far, three of the six, I think, were written at least in part in Detroit, which is interesting because I don't spend that much time there. So something about Detroit really does, like, I tune in there. When I'm writing the morning pages, it doesn't matter where I am. I'm always more creative and more in tune. After I get back from a trip, for sure, I'm always more creative and more in tune. And LA, sometimes we can have a tumultuous relationship. It's not so much LA, it's the industry I have a hard time with sometimes. You know, like as much as it's cool that there always is something to talk about, the fact that there's always something to talk about makes me feel like I always have to have something to talk about. And if yeah. I don't, because of how I'm wired and like the way I've been wired toward like believing that my worth lies in my achievement, I can really feel like I'm not worthwhile if I'm in a conversation with somebody who I think might be judging me for not having the achievements I should have being an industry professional. No, that's real. It's those voices that enter your creative space right when you start because you're surrounded by the commerce industry of what we do and like the commodified it's kind of nice in new york because i do feel like there's more of a sense of just like do your thing be a hippie creative a little more than la um because everything is commerce in la creativity has been made into a business yeah so i know exactly what you mean it's harder so let's dive into it because in addition to being a great human, you're also an impeccable filmmaker and a fantastic writer. And today we're going to really dive into your film, Always Lola, which was so beautiful. I had the chance to see it on the big screen last you summer. You did a screening. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. And first of all, I want to talk about, you know, you briefly mentioned that we're both Midwesterners. In order to make something, 
you kind of have to get over the curse of niceness. Yeah. And I think both of us, while I would say like niceness and kindness is one of the best things about us, it can also be a burden because it makes it really hard to set boundaries, to like ask for things in a very direct way and to not feel like you're being mean. How did you work with that in stepping into this leadership role as a director and writer and producer? You know, I think for me, it was surprisingly not a huge leap for me. I think because in my mind, being a film director is just being a decisive decision maker, right? Like a when someone comes up to you with a question, standing by the instincts that you have and the opinions that you have and sharing those with someone without any kind of apologies or qualifiers. Because I think what helped me stand in my power, Lauren, for this movie specifically, I wrote it. And I spent so long writing it and working so hard on the script that I kind of felt like I had earned the right to be confident in my decisions around it. And I'm sure like when you're on set for music videos, when you've spent so long on the song and bleeding for it and it's so personal, when someone comes up and asks you something, it's not hard for you to answer it because you've already worked on it for so long. There was only one scene when I feel like, and there was a lot of people in the cast, so it doesn't exactly matter who this actor was but I felt like there was one take where I had a pretty specific vision for what I wanted and this actor didn't agree which is totally fine and I actually give the first take always to the actor but this actor I gave them their take I let them do their version of the scene and then I needed mine and this actor just like wouldn't do it and like didn't want to do it and at a certain point I was kind of just like we just have to do it I'm trying to remember how it resolved. I remember feeling internally very hot and like my eyes could have popped out of my head. And I don't get very angry, but it actually kind of was making my blood boil, which doesn't happen very often, which I guess is an affirmation that I have pretty strong creative decisiveness, you know, even if I'm, I think I'm not decisive in any other area of my life. But for some reason on this set, I like knew what I wanted creatively. And eventually the scene happened and this person did it. It was a weird moment for me because I felt pretty sure-footed. <laughs> like I just knew what I wanted. Well, that's true because, I mean, you did prep so long for this. I mean, I was part of some of the initial table reads. And this was over the course of, like, what, two, three years? Like, take me through this. Like, take me through for somebody out there who's interested in screenwriting and directing and all the things that you've done. What was it like from idea to I have released this movie. Like, take me through the trajectory, both emotionally and, like, tactically. What had to happen? Yeah, the movie, for people who are listening, it's a coming-of-age dramedy that follows these five recent high school grads who are reuniting on their annual camping trip to mourn the loss of their best friend who used to organize this trip. And on this specific trip where we meet them, secrets around her death like slowly leak out among their friend group and threaten to destroy their memory of her and their friendships. It's pretty personally inspired by the death of my friend Peggy. And I had a very close friendship with Peggy in high school. I'd say she was one of my best friends. She was also a great creative collaborator too. Like we loved movies, but I lost her at a very young age. And I like to say that um, the movie is very specifically about the experience of being young and losing someone who's your age because you know a lot of young people have lost parents or grandparents and that's a very specific type of grief but losing a peer is like a very destabilizing experience for young people and i think most people can point to like the first person that was like their age or their friend so that's a lot of what the movie is about and because of that like all of that emotional turbulence that I had gone through trying to unpack what happened to my friend really became the juice and kind of the lava for me to write this movie. I sort of initially just wrote it as an exercise to kind of work through my feelings and my experience. And as the story started to take shape, it was like a reunion movie. I was like, maybe this is something we could actually make. That was a fun realization. How do you go from this is something I'm using to work through my emotional turmoil to heal to, oh my God, this is an idea. Like, tell me about that light bulb moment and what gave you the tingle? Because we have a lot of ideas that we start on and don't finish. What made you so sure? Because making a movie isn't just like, I think I'll film a 30 second video today. This is a huge undertaking. So what made you sure? And what made you know this was something to not only take to the finish line creatively, but then to fight for? Such a good question. 
I will say, like, I knew deep in my bones that, like, before I died, I wanted to at least make one movie. I wanted to have one thing I wrote, like, be a movie that people could watch. And I was like, even if it's really bad and we make it on flip phones, like, I want to have a thing. And it's something I love about you, Lauren. Like, you walk the talk where, like, you have tons and tons of music on Spotify that, like, people can look up. And, you know, that's not true of everyone who's creative. And I understand everyone has a unique creative journey, but sometimes I just want to shake people who talk about the things they want to do and want to make. And, like, just don't take that extra step to just try it. I kind of was, like, movie or bust, honestly. Like, at a certain point, I was like, it's going to be so hard. And actually, Laura articulated this so well. Laura's my wife. She's a producer on the movie, another friend of Lauren's. And it was actually during COVID. I was in a pretty intense job, and I... It was entertainment industry adjacent, but not exactly what I wanted to be doing. And I have a mentor I really like who talks about that. And she calls it being a shadow artist. And it happens to a lot of, isn't that good? That's so good. This is one of my mentors, Meg LaFove, who's a writer for Pixar. And actually, I'm going to quickly tell her story fast. Yeah, please. Just because it's a good one. But she um, went to college for screenwriting and eventually moved to LA and started working for ICM. And then eventually, like, worked her ass off and became the president of Jodie Foster's production company. So, like, big deal Hollywood A-list hotshot. Like, in rooms with Robert De Niro, like, killing it. But she had this deep, deep yearning to be a writer. And instead, she was a creative producer. So she was bringing writers in. And at a certain point, she realized that her yearning was too intense to the point where she was a dangerous collaborator, where she was trying so hard to put her own ideas and instincts into these writers' projects for Jody. when really what your job as a creative producer is to do is to shepherd the voice of that writer. And it happens a lot. People move to L.A. and they dream of being one thing, but they become a producer or become a production coordinator or a location manager or something that's adjacent to the industry, when really what's happening is their soul is like slowly crumbling. Um, And I understand this is not at all to shame people who have industry jobs. Like that's how we do it. But at a certain point, if you aren't nurturing that initial seed that you came out to LA to work on, even if it's doing it yourself or just getting out and shooting it on an iPhone, you will die. And um, Meg got to a point where she was like, okay, I'm quitting this big job. I'm going to go be a writer. I'll be starting at ground zero. And then JJ Abrams called her and said, I want you to run my company. <laughs> so she says that every time you make a decision to like fly the coop, the golden apple comes out and like forces you to really reckon with the choice. So she's like, I had to tell JJ Abrams, no, I want to be a writer. And she said he was like, fuck yeah, like go make your movie. And then she wrote Inside Out and won an Oscar. So I just got chills. That's an amazing story. I think you introduced me to her once. She's a wonderful woman. Very spiritual too, right? Yeah, I would say like she's spiritual in the same way your show is, where like creativity, like she talks about creativity in a very spiritual way. Because creativity, in my opinion, is intrinsically spiritual. Like you can't separate creativity from spirituality. So then how did you finally say, okay, I'm going to make this tough decision, make the leap and really go after it and create this film? Laura articulated it so well, again, my wife, where she said, as we were like evaluating our lives in the pandemic, she said, I feel like we have two really hard decisions right now. And one of them is to grow old and be 95 in the nursing home and like talk about the movie we never made. And one of them is to try to do it. And they both sound really, really hard. But I think one of them sounds harder. And that's the one where we're old and regretful. So we have to do the other hard choice. And that was just so well articulated. So we popped a bottle of champagne and it was like, we're going to shoot this movie in six months to hell or high water. And we hope it's good. But, you know, we didn't even set the expectations of it being good. One of the things I think is interesting about creativity is if you set too many expectations around it, you can kind of kill the whole exercise. So it was more just about doing it. And you did it in a really interesting way. So I thought the way in which you made this project come to life was super, super creative. So talk about how you ended up producing it in tandem with your university. Yeah, and I will say pretty specifically to if there are filmmakers listening, like this is a micro budget movie. We made it for low five figures and probably 75% of the movie was my own savings. And 25% was like producer money. But 
part of the way we saved money was that I reached out to my old university, which is a school in Ohio, confusingly called Miami University, which um, if you're from the Midwest makes sense, but I think most people will be like, what? Is it in Florida? It's in Ohio. It's a great school. What I realized was that um, college campuses actually make great nucleus for a production because especially like kind of small, like Midwest state school college campuses, because sometimes they're like in the middle of nowhere, but they have a million resources. They have bars and libraries and police stations and schools and buildings and student housing. So you kind of have everything you need. Um, So we realized it would make a great nucleus for our production. And we got students involved to kind of like shadow and crew. And I taught a class leading up to production And I involve my students in the making of the movie. There are background actors in it. Yeah, for filmmakers who are listening, I think, like, think about the resources that you have at your disposal. And if there are college campuses near you, think about what types of stories you could be telling within those kind of confines and what sounds interesting to you. I mean, like, give people a how-to guide, though, of how you did that. Did you literally reach out to an old professor there and say, hey, I've got this idea? And, like, what did you pitch to them? And what did they offer you in return for obviously that like they paid you in some way for teaching that class, but like, what was the value exchange there? What could be a similar one for someone? Yeah, it's a great question. The way we approached it was I reached out to the Dean of the theater school, actually. And I'm trying to remember exactly why she was in my Rolodex because I wasn't a theater major. I will say my university has a program with entertainment industry veterans called Inside Hollywood where they visit LA every year. And so I'd already worked with, um, her name's Elizabeth Mullinex. She's great. Shout out to Liz. That's what she goes by, Liz Mullinex. Um, So I'd worked with her already, but I connected with her and just kind of soft pitched her the idea and was like, I want to do a table read. But we did a sort of like formal, like Zoom virtual table read for the university and invited the dean of the theater school and sort of important people and like invited anyone who would want to watch as sort of like a table read slash workshop to sort of pitch the idea. And I think once people saw the feature and saw it up on its feet, there was more excitement about the idea of doing it in tandem with the university. And yeah, the class that I taught not only like gave me access to student personnel who could shadow set and like their background actors in the movie, but also did have a little bit of an adjunct, you know, professor salary that went straight back into the movie. But other than that, the school was very helpful, but I wouldn't say they were like partners in the film at all. We only shot on two campus locations and I had to go through the normal process to get those locations and, you know, get all of our production insurance and all that stuff. And everything else we actually shot off campus. I think in actually, instead of using dorms, we ended up using like an off-campus house because we shot in the summer and there weren't students there. So all those houses were vacant. So the university was incredibly helpful. I've got nothing but good will towards them, but I wouldn't say it was the kind of thing where it was like a partnership. It was more just like a really great relationship. And if we needed each other anytime, we would reach out to each other, if that makes sense. Yeah. I just think it's a great example of using the community you have at your fingertips. Like whenever we think about making something, we're like, we have to get somebody who's in the know and has, you know, all these connections. And it's like, why not go where people already love you? You know, where you already have some goodwill. Like I think about that a lot because I, a lot of times I see this happen with musicians, honestly, they'll move back to their hometown, even if it's a way smaller hometown than LA and have way more success back home than they did here. Because I think number one, people aren't burnt out on whatever you're doing. Like we said, everyone in LA is doing something in the creative industries. So when you go back home or go to a place that's smaller than the market you've been in, there's some excitement around what you're doing and they want to be a part of it. And number two, you're going to get more support from people who love you on a base level just for being who you are. And so I just thought that was so smart to go back to a home base for yourself rather than trying to create it in L.A., spending all this money, having to beg for people's goodwill. You did it in a place that you already had a connection. I think it's why stand-up comics will do their specials in their hometown. You know what I mean? Like, it'll be like, why is like, there's a stand-up I love named Beth Stelling. I was like, why is she filming in Dayton, Ohio? And it's like, oh, she's from there. Like, all her, like. High school friends are like coming to see her. You're just going to have a better crowd. And what else is fun about like not shooting in a major film city 
is people are like excited about it. Like I feel like in LA, if you see a film set, you're like, oh, now I can't, now I'm going to be like late to get my coffee. I got to right? walk like, around. Don't get me on camera. Right. A hundred percent. And it's like in Oxford, Ohio, it's like, we're making a movie. So like you like have, there's like some magic around it, which is nice. hundred percent. I remember. So Michigan had film incentives back in 2008 to 2000 something I don't know but they first came through in 2008 and Clint Eastwood filmed Gran Torino in my hometown and I remember we spent one full day just traveling around trying to follow the set and get a glimpse of Clint Eastwood and it was the most exciting thing but if I saw Clint Eastwood filming something here I'd be like oh cool (laughs) (laughs) exactly or you'd be like oh I now I can't get my Starbucks are you from Gross Point? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, from Gross Point. When he was in Gross Point, did you ever step on his lawn during production? And if so, did he say, get off my lawn? I didn't. <laughs> no, I was pretty far away. I, I did take a picture of him on my digital camera, though. Oh, yes, a digital camera. That's like such a sign of the times. <laughs> a grainy, grainy picture of Clint Eastwood somewhere on my Facebook. <laughs> Still counts. Still counts. We're basically best friends. I saw him <laughs> um, when I interned on The Ellen Show when I first moved here, and I was like... I wonder if he remembers me. <laughs> <laughs> That's the girl that took a grainy digital photo of me. Give me that when I was making. <laughs> that wasn't sanctioned. <laughs> Something you've mentioned a bunch of times while we've been talking is your amazing wife, Laura. She is such a powerhouse. Uh, shout out to Laura. She's actually a producer on the Kelly Clarkson show, was a producer on the Jimmy Kimmel show for years. She produces with so much heart. Everything she does just has. She's her... like you. It's the same. I love her. I wish that we got to know each other better before she left, but I I do feel like our friendship will continue to grow even across. I think you guys will both be like running. I don't want to gas you up too much, Lauren, but like I do think you and Laura both have that thing of just like that like you called her like she's just a boss and she's just kind of doing it, and I'm like that's kind of you too. Yeah, I just think you guys will both be if you want to be like show running. I I think you will be in tangential spheres together because I just both keep seeing you do this. So and to the podcast listeners, I raised my hand like up like a graph. So that's what I did. But yeah, I'm sure you all will continue to be in similar circles because of that, you know? Yeah. Well, honored to be mentioned in the same sentence as her, honestly. But tell me about working with a spouse because it kind of sounds like it came together organically. How did you two decide to work together? What are your tips for working with your life partner? It's a great question. Do you talk about your boyfriend on the show, Lauren? Oh, yeah. Timmy. I don't want to turn it back on you, but do you guys ever work together? We want to, but honestly, we need your tips because I think we need to work on something that we both co-create from the beginning. Because what happened was he tried to come into helping me with Unleash, and we got into a weird power dynamic because he was editing videos for me. And I was like, well, that's not right. And he was like, wait, aren't you going to say thank you that I did this video? I'm like, yeah, thank you. We need to do this differently. (laughs) So I think I was acting too much like a boss and not like a collaborator because I was too familiar with him. And so either we need to work on a project that we both built together from the ground up or we need to find a lot more boundaries like when one of us is jumping onto each other's project and like protect our personal relationship while also getting what we need from each other work-wise. You literally just nailed it. I feel like the three points you just laid out are like, I totally agree with. It's interesting with Laura because like we, we had collaborated on something when we first moved to LA and we did like totally co-create that. So Laura's actually a great writer. She's a different writer than me. She's very funny. She's like a joke writer. She was an improviser in college and she's great with story too, but I feel like for her like development and like long story sessions and narrative and breaking it all down and building it back up like isn't her jam. She works in daily production. She likes sketch and comedy. But we wrote and actually optioned a half hour pilot and we worked very well together. I will say I feel like our relationship was very new at the time, so we yeah. were like We were still kind of in that honeymoon phase, which probably created a bit more like politeness around how we work together. It'd be very interesting and flow. And in some ways we have way more flow now that we've been together a decade, but it's different, right? Um, We're probably pricklier because we know each other even better. But I think that's really sharp what you just said. And I wouldn't have been able to articulate it until you just did. But I do think the fact that we created it together and it was ours from the start was like a very helpful thing because that process was really fun. 
I think with Always Lola, because I wrote it, Laura did a pretty good job of understanding that her role as a producer was to kind of be a third party, like a 10,000 foot view on the script and offer me feedback. And she's also my first person for notes always. But there was a couple scenes that she disagreed with and 90% of them, I would go with what she wanted, but there was a couple that like, I really put my foot down and was like, I actually want to do it this way. And we both just kind of had to be cool with that because with a producer on a typical movie, they're the money person. So you have to listen to the producer but with this, like it was our, which also was complicated because it was our savings. So if we both felt strongly about something, we were kind of like, what do we do? I think because we knew this was ultimately going to be my calling card as a writer, I sort of had to go. There's one scene in particular that's a little spicy and a little challenging at the beginning of the movie that I loved. And she was like, this is kind of weird. And I was like, I know it's weird, but like, this is the one. Just trust me, we have to keep it. And I'm so glad we did because. It's a scene people really, really like, and they respond to well, and I think it's a good expression. If you're only going to get to do it once, you kind of have to do it your way for the first one because it sets the playbook for your whole career. Do you feel comfortable giving like the broad outline of what that scene is? Because I feel like that gives a little insight into it. Totally. And it's very early in the movie. Um, the title character, we actually start in the past, so when the movie starts... We're actually with Lola and the whole group on like an earlier camping trip. And so we're meeting her and we're getting a sense of who she is and who her friends are. And her oldest friend and her best friend is struggling with his sexuality. So there's like a coming out of the closet scene that happens very early in the movie. And it takes place in a barn. And um, what I was trying to do with this scene is like pay homage to the classic kind of like sex scenes of 80s coming-of-age movies like John Hughes. And they're always a boyfriend and a girlfriend. It's the first time. It's a losing a virginity scene. And it's awkward. And it's an important teenage moment. But I wanted to turn that on its head and create something that felt a little more 2023. So it's the same kind of awkward, intimate scene. But it's a gay character trying to come out to Lola and asking if he can touch her boobs. Actually, is what the scene's about. And you don't see anything. And it's a very PG-13 scene. But... It has all of the kind of like awkward charm of like a, a sex scene in one of those 80s movies, but it's much more about the intimacy of friendship and the relief that you feel when you're safe to come out to someone you love with kind of a weird edge to it. And I love the scene and it gets awkward laughs, but people always say, oh, at the end of it. So I know it works. Yeah. And I'm glad we kept it. Yeah. I get where she was coming from, but like it also like, there was consent the whole time. It was never like, oh, this is weird or she feels weird or he feels weird. Like, I loved how much communication there was. I mean, honestly, I feel like if in all of our sexual relationships we could have that much communication, the world would be in a much better, happier place. That's also kind of what the scene's about is yeah. like, it's interesting how much safer this experience is between friends than it sometimes is between lovers. And like really what the movie is about is like the intimacy of friendship in so many ways and how sometimes our friendships can feel even more intimate than our romantic relationships, depending on where we are. And I kind of wanted to like portray that in the scene, but I understand probably Laura's thinking too, as a producer, like this is your first movie on a micro budget. Why are we having a scene like this? Like this is only a liability for us. Yeah. It's probably her other thought. Well, especially like coming from the world we come from, we're always trying to like prevent people from getting canceled as producers. Uh -huh. And so I'm sure she had that going through her mind. And I'm her husband too. She yeah. wants to protect me. Presumably I'm going to have some kind of contribution to our life. And if I get canceled professionally, like that's not good for anyone. So yeah. no, I get it. It turned out great. So, okay. I, I had this thought come in my head because you were, when you were talking about your relationship with Laura and your different approaches to creativity and writing, you mentioned story and sticking with the story and creating the arc and going back and editing. First, I want to ask you this. Do you think that there is a through line to all good storytelling? And if so, what is it? Mm, it's so funny, Lauren. I work on a podcast with some writers from Pixar. I mentioned Meg. So I've been editing these sort of Patreon workshops we're doing for our community. So right now, it's burned into my brain, this answer. So I can't tell if this is what I really think or just that I've been on this like 10,000 hour editing project and this is like what my mentor thinks. But I think one of the commonalities I've seen across all these workshops is all good storytelling is about transformation. 
and it's about meeting someone, a character, and they're one person at the beginning of the story, and there's someone else at the end of the story. And we think we're going to see movies or read books because of big action scenes or set pieces, but really what we're looking for is emotional release in some way, either that's laughing or crying or feeling or being scared. We go see movies specifically, I think, to experience some kind of emotional catharsis. And we go because we want to see change. We want to meet someone at the beginning of a movie and go on a journey with them and see them have a different understanding of who they are at the end of the movie and be someone new because of that. And to me, that is a pretty reliable commonality in movies. But you asked about stories. But I think I would still stick by that for stories, No, too. I think that's true. What's the Jeff Graham story so far? I don't know. Man, that's interesting. How about this? What about from the time you started the movie to now? What's the Jeff Graham story? From the time you first wrote it to now? You guys talk about this on the show sometimes, too. But, like, creative identity is a very interesting one. And I think I went into the movie really feeling like I was a writer and that was what I did. And it was weird for me to leave the movie learning I also really love to direct and feeling some kind of imposter syndrome around that because, like, I'm not, like, a director. I'm not, like, a fancy, like... And so I still feel some imposter syndrome around that. What was very weird for me was I really wrote the movie as a calling card for me as a writer, but I was lucky. We had a nice little festival run, and I actually won a directing award during the festival circuit But part of me was like, no, 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 this is the wrong one. Like, I want that screenplay award over there. So that's been an interesting, like, identity gymnastics for me. Kind of thinking, like, not only do I like directing, but, like, I might be kind of good at it. Like, that's a weird one. Because I don't know. I don't feel like it. So why did you want to write and direct? I mentioned that thing that Laura and I wrote that got optioned. It actually got made on, like, a shoestring. It was a half-hour, like kind of pilot presentation. That was the word they were using in 2014. And someone else directed it. I was would not have been ready to direct at all. And he was a great director and still is and still is a friend. But he made specific choices. I'm not even saying they were the wrong choices. But they weren't choices that I would have made. And very often during that production, I was watching the monitor thinking, huh, that's an interesting choice. And I don't think that's the choice I would have made. And sometimes if you're watching a creative experience or a performance or listening to a song for you and you think, huh, I would have done something different and it happens in the moment, that probably means that you might be that thing. Mm. And I didn't realize it at the time, but like commonly recurring feelings like I could have done this differently or I would have done this differently or like if I were in this seat, I would have might be an indication that you are. So I didn't realize that at the time, but... As I was putting Lola together, I kept thinking of all the people I'd want to direct it. And I kept thinking like, well, what if it were me? And like, I have all these instincts around this. And I was like, I don't know if I'm necessarily the best person on the planet to do this. But I think I worked really, really hard on this script. And I bled for these characters. And I can answer any question that anyone would ask me on set because I've worked so hard on this. Who's to say I wouldn't be the best person behind the camera? And I got a great DP. So I felt enough confidence because of all that context going in. And you know what else? I knew we were putting our own money into it. And I was like, if it's going to be a royal fuck up, I want it to be on my own terms. And I don't want to resent anyone else because that's not fair to them. It's not fair for me to bring in a director and blame it on them. I should be responsible for this. And then if it sucks, I at least have the safety to get mad at myself. Yeah, you can own it. I can own it, yeah, and not unfairly resent someone for something I maybe should have been doing in the first place. So, You just said so many interesting, insightful things, and I've actually never heard anybody else say that, that when you have that thought, I would have done it this way. Oh, I wonder why they didn't do it like this. I've heard people talk about it in regard to jealousy, but I've never heard it been brought up in regard to critique. That's really, really interesting and creative listening Start to think about the creative things you take in that you have notes for and start asking, could that be your inner voice telling you, actually, I want that. The other thing I've never thought about is that sometimes when we give over creative power to somebody else, it could be, not always, but sometimes it could be that we're looking for a cop-out in case something doesn't go the way we want it to. So if I... For instance, like this isn't 
you know, my story, but let's say I was working on a song and I could have produced the song, but I was like, you know what? No, I'm going to let somebody else do it because I don't want that burden. If it fails, like that's something just to ask yourself, like if you're giving away some creative responsibility that you may have a desire to do, or you could feasibly do making sure you're giving it away because you really don't want to do it, or you really think that person could do it better. Not because you're trying to have a scapegoat for if things don't go the way you want them to. Very well said. Yeah, that's that's right. I think all that's exactly right. And I love what you said too, Lauren, that like if you have an instinct around something, that could be your voice. Like Because if you're listening to a song, and I bet this happens to you. It never happens to me. I love music, but I'm not a songwriter at all. I think songwriting is like a magic art. It is so different than screenwriting because it's so concise. And I just think it's magical, but... When you have those instincts, it's not that that artist did it wrong or bad, but it's that your voice in that moment is screaming to come out. That's what's happening is that magic inside of you that only you have, like that superpower that only you have because only you have your voice. That's it pushing against your throat, like trying to get out and, you know, escape. So you brought up another thing I wanted to ask you about. So how did you get over imposter syndrome? Because it was your first time directing. That's going to be present. Like, what did you do to study, to prepare yourself for this? How did you overcome imposter syndrome? And what's your tips for other people who are maybe going toward their passion for the first time and dealing with that? Yeah, I, again, was lucky to have like a really, really great team. I think specifically my director of photography is a guy named AJ that I had worked with already. And for non-filmmaking people, like director of photography is just like the cinematographer, like they're in charge of how the movie looks in collaboration with the director. And like, he was so generous to really walk me through pre-production and like teach me a lot before we got to set. This was his 11th movie and he owns part of the movie because he just helped me so much in pre-production. I was like, he wanted to do it just to be generous. And I was like, AJ, like I literally will not sleep unless I give some of this to you just because you've been so helpful But he really taught me about lenses and cameras and like sent me video essays and like prepped me for set. I also knew a lot of folks going in before we got to set. I talked with the actors a lot in pre-production about their characters. And you know what? They all really liked the script. And I knew they trusted me as a writer. So I was like, that's halfway. If they trust me this much as a writer and a storyteller, like directing isn't too much further away, especially with a great DP. And literally on day one, I like gathered all the cast and crew around and I was just like, before we start, I want to tell you all that I'm deeply excited and I'm deeply scared and you can be too. And like, that's great. And like, let's let that be juice for us rather than an impediment. Like if filmmaking is just being vulnerable on camera, I was like, I'll start. I'm fucking terrified. Here we go. (laughs) You know? And then the actors felt safe to be scared too. Yeah. What are the benefits of leading with vulnerability? I think the job of art and creativity is vulnerability. So I don't understand directors whose approach is to like posture and pardon my French, but kind of like swing their dick on set because I'm like, that mentality feels so counterproductive to the process to me, because I think, especially for actors, The only thing scarier than directing is having a camera right here, knowing any single thing I do will not only be recorded, but might be on a 70 foot screen in front of hundreds of people. And like, as vulnerable as I feel as a writer, I have to admit, like, it's not me who's on camera. So I don't understand directors who don't make vulnerability like a sort of their like leadership approach, because I'd have to imagine set would then feel fake or like defensive, which feels very counterproductive. Well, you know, I love that you're talking about vulnerability as the antidote to imposter syndrome because that gets you off the hook for having to know everything. Like as long as you're willing to be honest with people and share when you're feeling scared, when you're feeling unsure, when you're feeling anything at all, like within reason, obviously, like you want to bring confidence to the set. But like, as long as you're willing to be honest with people, people will trust you. It's when that posturing's happening that people don't feel safe and they don't feel like they can trust you. So it's a great point. Yeah. And I think it was helpful, I will say, because the movie was about 
feeling scared. <laughs> like it was a night I was kind of like, and the good news is if anyone else feels this way, like it's kind of what the movie's about. So like, let's just roll with it. <laughs> like yeah. it'll only lead to good work. I can see where like, if you were directing like a big Marvel movie, it might be a harder approach, but I don't know. I still think people feel safe to be f- more fully themselves if you model it for them first. So I was like, I guess I'll just be truthful and hopefully then other people will feel safe to do the same, which is like, that's the job of art is to try to tell the truth, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. So tell me, because you had to pause during the multiple strikes. <laughs> How did you deal with that? Because you had this movie, it was ready to come out. You got a distribution deal, which was huge. Yeah, it's exciting. You're not owning that enough. <laughs> I'm going to call you exciting. out right now. <laughs> it was cool. We got it. Like the thing that was so cool, Lauren, was like, we got a deadline article, which I was just yes. like, and Laura was in it too. And I was just like, college us would have been so proud to be in deadline together. Like that was freaking so cool. How have you been? You're asking about the strikes. I feel, and I'm, I really want to hear from you, but I feel like our journey as like young professionals has been like a three-year pandemic that almost destroyed our business then things slowly cobbled back together then the jenga tower totally was ripped out again with the strikes like it's a very tough time yeah i mean i am in sag but i'm since i'm not acting a ton like it hasn't really hit me very hard i think the thing i'm grappling with right now is where is the podcast industry actually going I want to hear your thoughts. I think there needs to be a major change. And I think there needs to be a major democratization in whose voices are getting to come to the top. Because it's not even the top 1% of podcasts. I'm in the top 1% of podcasting. My podcast is in the top 1%. It's not the top 1% of podcasters that are making money. It's like the top 0.01%. And even in America, that's not the case. Okay? So... What's the thing that people have been saying? Like, we've missed the memo or we've lost the... Lost the plot? Yes. Thank you, writer. I think we've lost the plot because podcasting really was started because people were able to express themselves into their iPod and then put it on the internet. And now it's just turned into this thing with big business. And I think if it's going to move forward, it has to come back to the center a little bit and become possible for the average human to make it. Okay, I read this quote the other day, Lauren, that said, um, the thing that's horrible about tech, and I don't want to get in trouble here, but... Oh, whatever. (laughs) It was like, tech culture comes in to disrupt, right? Like disruptors. That's like the language. But really, all they do is they come into an already existing business model that works with labor protections and a financially viable model. So... Television used to be very union-supported and ad-based, and everyone made a lot of money. But then Netflix came along and was like, we're disruptors. We're going to do all of this, but create a fucking broken financial model that doesn't work to bring Wall Street in, steal all the business, tank the industry, and then go back to ads now that everything is gone, go back to the old model that does work, but with none of the labor protections that existed before they disrupted it. It's with podcasting, it's the same thing where it's like, it's great that it's free and like your show is a gift and it's generous. But also, I don't know if all the work that podcasters are putting into, unfortunately, there's been a culture built around content where people feel like they should be getting it for free. And that's because tech came in and fucking broke everything that used to work. Yeah, I don't know. I think kind of everything needs a gut check. Something I'm kind of inspired by right now is Substack. Have you heard of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I follow a couple Substacks. I feel like Substack is doing something cool. Like podcasting is trying to. I don't know. I mean, we could do a whole podcast about podcasting I totally and would. where it's I know. going. Bring me back. But yeah, I don't know. The SAG after thing's weird. I mean, the thing that I could never figure out, especially when I was pursuing acting full time, was like, how can there possibly be this many streaming services and I still don't have a job? I could still cry thinking about acting because it's not even like I want to do it so bad. Like I, I love acting. So when I get the opportunity to do it, but like the business of acting is so heartbreaking. I just can't believe what actors have to be subjected to truthfully. I know I hated the audition process because I thought everyone was great. 
And I auditioned and I got called back, but I didn't get the part. I know. I hope it's okay. I was going to bring it up and I hope it's okay, Lauren. Like you were fucking great. Oh, thanks. I'm not just saying that. You'd already read it and you're very smart. That's part of it too is like smart actors are good because they understand story and like you really knew the character. But the only reason you or anyone didn't get a part didn't even really have to do with their talent. Yeah. Acting is so crazy because it's this invisible thing that it's like, very hard to even explain, but with Jesse Pinkman in Breaking Bad, they said Aaron Paul walked in, said nothing, and got the part. And I used to roll my eyes at that, but what's true is that I'm actually affirming what you're saying, that 99% of the actors in LA are actually unbelievable. I assumed that a bunch of the auditions I was going to get would be like bad, and I'd have to like you know eliminate a lot. Almost all of them are at least pretty good. And I was like, I just wish I could cast everyone. It really didn't have that much to do with talent, <laughs> which is sad. What does it have to do with? Because I do have a lot of actors in my audience. Like, tell them so that they can stop feeling sad. <laughs> what is it? It is an intangible. Sometimes it's the way your voice sounds, which you're not in control of. It's the way your shoulders might do some. It's like all stuff where you could make big choices, and you probably should. And like, they might just not be exactly the right choice. And there's nothing wrong or bad about the fact that you made one. With this script, I it was pretty autobiographical. So a lot of the characters, I had an idea of who they were in the very dark corners of the back of my subconscious. And if an actor came on and my brain went boop, then that was them. You know what I mean? Right. And like, that is so not a helpful or tangible note. But I think if there were a helpful or tangible note, actors would be booking all the time because that would be the answer. And a lot of times it's just like they have a thing that you can't even put your finger on. So hard. Actors stay strong. If you love it, you should do it. But honestly, if I could go back in time, what I would do is not take anything personally. Like, I actually think I would kill it as an actor today because I don't care at all. Mm -hmm. Like, if I get it, great. If I don't, great. Like, I know it's not about me. And I know that acting is a scam because you're basically begging someone to tell you that you're even good enough to interview for a job. It's crazy. Crazy. So I would not care at all. I would give zero fucks. And then I would also become a writer because no one can tell me that I'm not right for the part that I wrote. So for me, like with being a creative, that's why I do think it was wonderful that you wrote, directed, and produced. I don't want anybody muddying up my process. I want support. I want the support I need, but I don't want people coming in and telling me I shouldn't do things the way I envisioned doing them. That's exactly right. And I wanted to tell every actor, like, you're great, you're talented. It's not this one, but that it literally has nothing to do with your skill or your talent or even your artistry. I saw auditions that were great, but I was like, if this person's in the movie, it's a different movie. Yeah. And it also, that shows the power of actors too. I mean, it's kind of like vocals. You know, you can have a million good singers, but certain songs need certain singers. And that does not mean that the other singers aren't good. It just means, you know, it's like, I don't know if that's a good analogy or not. So wait, so let's just circle back to the initial question, which was you were all set to release. Like you had the oh, release yeah, date <laughs> planned and then the strikes get announced. Like how did you move through that, deal with the disappointment? and also plan for the future with not knowing that when these things are going to end. It was sad. And I want to say all this standing in like the deepest solidarity I can with the unions. Like it was never a question. I mean, like it was easy for us to push, but it can be a little frustrating when it's like the strike is not about our $30,000 movie. You know, like we're not the problem. Yeah. So it's frustrating to have to symbolically stand in solidarity for something when it's like you are the little tiny mouse trying to fight the giant Goliath in the forest. But I will say we were lucky. Our distributor was like so easy to work with through all this. And, you know, they stand to make money too if the movie does well. So they're invested in the movie performing. So we all knew that if we wanted the movie to do as well as we could, we should hold for the actors to be able to promote as well. So it's all fine. I think part of it is just you want to just get the show on the road. I mean, we shot the movie in 21. We premiered it in summer of 22. And so it's been like, it's been finished for like 15 months. So we're just excited to get it out. And how does it feel now that you're finally pushing your creative baby out into the world? Like it's going wide. What does this feel like? This is potentially going to be seen on every continent in the world. 
How does that feel? Like, have you conceptualized that yet? I don't think so. Can I give you like my honest answer? Yeah, please. I feel like I'm in a way like a little over the movie. I hope that's okay to say. It's not like so bad to say. I'm so deeply proud of it. The cast is amazing, but the weird thing about filmmaking especially is it's like I've been working about this and thinking about this for, well, five years with from the initial script, and we finished the first cut and premiered it in summer of 2022, so it's also weird because the things that I'm writing and pitching now, I'm a different writer and a different director, and that doesn't mean I'm not still deeply proud of what I made, but I kind of just want it to come out and for people to see it and then get on to the next thing, you know? Yeah. But I'm still, so, I shouldn't be really enjoying it. And I don't know why I'm having a complicated thing here. Well, could you yes and yourself, you know? Like, okay, yes, you're a different writer and a different director now. And you're like excited about other projects because that's just how creative life works. Like we finish one thing and we're ready for the next. And this is a really big deal. And your first wide distribution of a movie that you wrote, directed, and produced. Both of these things can coexist. Yes, that's really well said, and I needed you tonight. That's very true. And honestly, it's like incredibly exciting. Honestly, I'm most excited for people to see the performances. I'm like very proud of the writing and direction. The thing I love about filmmaking is it's like a very shared collaborative thing. And the cast is so good, and they their performances deserve to be seen by the world. So I can't wait for people to see it. Shout out to Roxy Stryer, one of my besties. She's the star. She's Lola. All the actors are incredible. You really did a great job making like all the energy. They did really feel like a group of lifelong friends. So you you did a good job with that little ping that went off in your head when the actors walked in the room. You know what? Maybe for songwriters who are listening, it's like putting a certain instrument in the mix. Those other instruments aren't bad. It's just that, like, for the whole concoction, you needed a very specific trebly thing here. And that's no one's fault or talent related. It's just this is what the song needs, you know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's like a freeing thing to know it's not you, it's energy. <laughs> yep. It's the cooking pot. Yeah. We already have paprika. We need salt. Right. Okay. Well, Jeff, I could talk to you forever, but this is my final question for you. If you... And the Jeff that I met that day in the AfterBuzz TV room, <laughs> the AfterBuzz TV computer room, you today and that version of you, Jeff, were standing in the same room looking at each other. What do you think he would say to you today and why? I think he would say, I'm proud of you. And I think he would say, like, you did it. You did this thing that I really wanted. And if I never get to make another movie, and I think I will, I really do think, gone to my head, I would say I will. But it's really cool that I've gotten to do it once. Like, that is a huge bucket list checkmark thing for me that, like, no one can ever take away from me. And we sold it. And, like, that is something that will always be true. And, like, I think that that Jeff would be really stoked to know that that milestone benchmark for him will happen. Yeah. And what would you say to him and why? Oh, man. I'd give him a hug. And I'd say, like, it's okay that you didn't BCC that email today. I know that, like, it wasn't great. And, like, a lot of those email addresses got shared with people that shouldn't have shared it. But it was your first time sending out, like, a big boy business email. And you really fucked it up. It's fine. It, like, couldn't be less of a big deal. And you're going to make this a big deal for two weeks. And it doesn't need to be. And you should just try to take a melatonin and sleep better tonight than you thought you were going to. Because everything is fine. Yeah. Why don't things feel fine when everything is fine? Because your 20s are so hard and you think you should be somewhere you're not every single day. I don't know why we're so hard on ourselves. I think that I'm a lot less hard on myself now than I was. Oh, my God. Back then. I mean, it was just like personal fight club every day. Mm, I'll see you. I'll see you in all my waking hours, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> and at night, in your dreams too. Yeah, nice try. It's a twenty-four-seven. Yeah. Oh well, I love that version of Jeff. I love this version of Jeff. I'm immensely proud of you. This is an incredible movie. Everybody, go buy it, stream it, rent it, do your thing. You gotta see it. These performances are amazing. Jeff's writing is amazing. The directing is amazing. It's shot beautifully. I mean, you would never know this was an ultra low budget. It looked like you had a million dollars. 
That was it. I mean, I got to say, I do think that our DP is an actual genius. I don't understand. He would like set the camera up and do stuff with lights and be like, how's that look? And I'd be like, well, it looks like a Martin Scorsese movie action, I guess. It was like crazy. <laughs> action, was, I guess. Everyone's, like, Make it a everyone's like, what is directing? And I'm like, I stood at the monitor and like said, good job. And then the movie was done. I was like, <laughs> hey, sometimes that is directing. That's what I feel like I do as a producer. I'm just like, heart is 90% of the job. And hiring good people. And surrounding yeah. yourself with smart people. That's everything. Totally. The movie's out now. You can get it on Apple TV, Google Play, and Amazon. I will say, a lot of you are like, you know, creatives and independent artists. And this is a great chance for you to support indie film, uh, which is like a dying medium and really needs love. So I don't want to toot my own horn too much. But even if it's just as a gesture to support an independent production, I think it's $4 to rent. So Well worth it. We'll put a link in the show notes. And Jeff, love you, appreciate you. I love you, Lauren. We just unleashed. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> this was fun. Thanks again, Lauren. You're the best. Thank you for listening. And thanks to my guest, Jeffrey Crane Graham. For more info on Jeff, follow him at Jeffrey Crane Graham and find his feature film, Always Lola, on Apple TV, Google Play, and Amazon. Thanks to Rachel Fulton for helping edit and associate produce this episode. Follow her at Rachel M. Fulton. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag the guests at Jeffrey Crane Graham so they can share as well. My wish for you this week is that you take inventory of what your one big creative dream is. What is the thing that you want more than anything else in your creative life? So take that inventory, write it down, and then this week, take one step toward that. If you start out and you take baby steps, it really is possible, and I know you can do it. I love you, and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.